If you have a Bible, may I encourage you to uh, turn to the two spots we were in last week, Genesis chapter number 2 and Ephesians chapter number 5. Genesis chapter number 2 and Ephesians chapter 5. Tommy, I'm getting a little bit of feedback up here. So last week we started a new series uh, entitled Highlighting the Home. And uh, two purposes behind it, of course, to focus on the relationships within our home, but then also to to understand how those relationships, bless you, how those relationships in our home uh, remind us of our relationship with God. And for example, last week, if if you weren't here, we started with the relationship of marriage and looked at a statement uh, that was given in defense of a couple who had chosen to live together but not get married and had told uh, Tim Keller, who wrote a book about uh, called The Meaning of Marriage, they said, I don't need a piece of paper to love someone. And we talked about this last week and, and how it's true that I, I, as a husband, I don't need a piece of paper to love my wife on the days when I want to love her, right? On the days when, uh, when I feel like loving her, I don't need a piece of paper. On the days when she's not lovable, which has, which has never happened yet, uh, by the way. I just want to make that absolutely crystal clear. And if that's not clear, may I go to someone's home for lunch today, all right? <laughs> uh, but the, the, the fact that Jamie and I stood at a, a marriage altar and we made vows to one another, the vow was, I will love you on days when I feel like loving you, which you don't need to command me to do that, but I'm also going to love you on days when you're not lovable or on days when I'm not lovable or on days when I might find love somewhere else. On all those days, it's still got a ring, Tommy. I'm so sorry. You want to pull me down just a little bit? I'm not sure what it is. On all those days, um, I promise to love you. And, and the, that whole covenant love we talked about last week, that covenant love of marriage is, is meant to point us to the faithful covenant love of God through Jesus to those who place their faith and trust in Christ. Remember, we saw this immediately in Genesis chapter 2, right after man, right after woman was created. In Genesis chapter number 2, the the author is giving us the narrative of the creation story. And after Adam has the opportunity to name all of the animals, he still finds no one to whom to give his heart to. And so God takes a rib and he makes woman. And when Adam sees her for the first time, his love song is, at last, yes, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, this is woman. But interestingly enough, the very next verse has nothing to do with the creation narrative, which is what we've been going through this whole time. This this verse is inserted by the author of Genesis after the very first man and very first woman come together, and he's inserting the language, the binding covenant love language of marriage, so that every reader from this point on will know that when a man and woman come together, it's a unique relationship unlike any other relationship we have on this world because look what he says in verse 24 therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and that's why we know it wasn't part of creation because Adam and Eve had no mother or father but a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh one flesh now isn't that interesting two becoming one flesh now how in the world does happen how did two become one 
Well, Jesus in the Gospels uses this very verse, Genesis 2, verse 24. He uses this very verse when he's asked about marriage. It's in Matthew 19, also in Mark chapter 10. And Jesus quotes Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And then he explains why or how two become one. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate and so this covenant love is supposed to show us the covenant love of god but also the covenant union of two becoming one that's supposed to point us to our relationship with the god who is a three in one that means we have to understand in our marriages, a marriage covenant is more than a man and a woman saying, hey, I'm going to love you till we die. No, it's far more than that. A marriage is when God looks down and he joins two into one. And, he, and those two say, we will honor this union of God by promising covenant love to one another until the day we die. And I, I'm not planning to talk about divorce throughout this entire series. I know that some of you, many of you in here may have experienced hurt in a marriage in the past, but I do want to make a few statements, not to bring shame or hurt to anyone, but to, to address those who are married now or who are not married about divorce, just, just to remind ourselves. Because God is the one who joins man and woman together in marriage, he's not favored divorce, he, hates divorce because what man joined to go god joined together he does not want man to, to to break up however i do want to make sure this is clear god so much honors that marriage covenant that when that covenant is broken through adultery i will promise to be with you and you alone and love you and you alone until death to us part when that is broken god does not require but he makes allowance for divorce in matthew 19 that's, and I'm not trying to say that so that we can promote divorce. I'm trying to say that so we understand how binding that covenant love, that covenant marriage truly is. But also, a marriage of restoration, meaning one that could be broken, that isn't. A marriage of restoration displays the glory of God. It displays the glory of God by reminding us all that God's love is not based on my behavior. That God's forgiveness has no limits. That God's grace covers all sin. And that God's faithfulness is not conditional on my faithfulness. And when we see marriages that could break, that don't, God is glorified in those moments. But it is not meant to assume, for, 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 I don't want you to assume that, that sin in a marriage is, is, should not face consequences because I don't believe that's scriptural either. See, Adam and Eve, when they started this relationship, it started with a love song, but as a part of their story, they both sinned against God and it cost them dearly. Remember last week, if you were here with us, the Bible opens with a covenant love of marriage in Genesis between Adam and Eve, and it's in the Garden of Eden. If we were to jump all the way to Revelation, Revelation ends with a covenant love marriage, this time between Christ and the church. And it takes place in Eden. We know that because the tree of life is there. And that reminds us that this is, Eden is where God wants us to live. Eden 
is where we will one day go back to. But God desires us in our relationships, in our marriages, to continue to try to return to this Eden-like atmosphere. So what, what's so big? What's the big deal about Eden? What took place in the Garden of Eden? Well, man and woman enjoyed unashamed intimacy with one another. Genesis 2.25 says the man and his wife were naked and they were not ashamed. Naked and unashamed. Intimacy with one another. And it also tells us in Genesis 3 that when God walked in the, cool, in the garden, in the cool of the day, that, that Adam and Eve were with God. And so there was intimacy with man and woman and there was fellowship with God. That's what Eden is, is where I can look at my fellow humans with, with complete and unashamed joy and have a fellowship with, with God. And that's where God wants us to be in our marriages. But both the intimacy between one another and the fellowship with God was broken, shattered by sin. Because that's what sin does. Sin destroys. Sin separates. Sin shatters. That's why we need Jesus. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus came to seek and to save sinners and that seeking and saving sinner was to restore the broken relationship between a sinful man and a holy God. And when that relationship is restored, it offers a restoration of peace between sinful man and sinful man or man and woman. When this relationship is restored, it offers restoration for this relationship you say how you remember the parable that jesus taught where a very very uh, the man owed a very very great debt it was, it was the debt was supposed to be so much that it was supposed to sound ridiculous to readers or to, to those jesus was speaking to the debt would be like oh yeah he he racked up the national debt it's impossible to rack up the national debt that was how impossible this debt was that Jesus was using in the parable. But the Bible says that a king forgave that man of a debt that was so astronomical. And he walked out, found someone that owed him a couple hundred dollars and said, pay me now or I'm going to send you to debtor's prison. And when the king heard about the man not offering forgiveness of his debt after receiving forgiveness, he called that man back and said, know what? You know what? I'm going to put you back in prison until you pay me the debt that you owe me, which is absolutely impossible. What's the point of that parable? Well, the point of that parable is that when we have understood the forgiveness that we've received from Christ, we walk around generously offering forgiveness to everyone else that we come across. Yet when we don't offer forgiveness generously, it means one of two things. Either we have not actually received forgiveness from God, we don't have salvation, or we have absolutely no idea of what a sinner we truly are. We just don't get the debt from which we've been forgiven. So someone who, has, who lacks forgiveness in their hearts fails to understand the forgiveness we've received and the sin debt that we've piled up. And that's how sin affects our relationship. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, which is a sinless environment, here's what we never find. Hey man, go love your woman. 
In the sinless environment of Eden, Adam saw a girl, he saw his wife, and he freely gave all of himself to her every day until sin came. And when sin came, everything changed. If you have your Bibles, look at Genesis chapter 3, verse number 6. In Genesis 3, verse number 6, and, and if you're not familiar with the creation narrative, or the, this is the first sin. This is when sin is introduced into the world, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and then that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Sin enters the world, verse 7. Then... The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So, so pause with me for just a moment. What did sinless Eden offer? Unashamed intimacy between man and woman and transparent fellowship with God. And when sin comes, immediately there is shame and hiding between man and woman. And there's hiding from the presence of God. Sin shattered the intimacy and sin shattered the fellowship. But that's not all sin does. See, sin also begins to make us realize or make, make us think, oh, I haven't sinned. I've been sinned against. Look at verse 11. Look at how they react to God's question in verse 11. When he says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam is questioned about his sin. And here's what Adam's first reaction is. Uh, I, his first reaction is not, I've sinned, Lord, you're right. His first reaction is, no, 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 it was the woman. She gave me the fruit, and actually you gave me the woman, so the two of you, you did me wrong. <laughs> and the woman says, oh, no, no, it was a serpent. The serpent is the one that... And see, here's the thing about sin. It not only deceives us into not trusting God, but it also deceives us into believing we are the ones who were sinned against rather than the one who's actually responsible for sin. It's that pride that says, no, 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 I, I wasn't me. But, but this doesn't always show up by pointing the finger at someone else. Sometimes we point the finger at something else that's an easier target. Instead of saying, yes, I'm a sinner and I, and I should confess my sin. I'm an angry person. I'm a bitter person. And both of those are sin. You know what we say? I'm just moody. I'm just irritated today. You know what? I'm tired and cranky. I am, I'm just completely overworked and I'm spent. Do you see the difference between moral responsibility? I'm an angry sinner. Or I'm just, I'm just tired. It's not my fault. Don't blame me that I'm acting this way. Hey, can, can I ask you? Did Jesus 
we go to the cross because we're sometimes a bit grouchy and grumpy when we're tired? Or did Jesus go to the cross because we're sinful, angry, rebellious people? So then why, why is that not our first transparent reaction? God, I am wrong. I have sinned against you. But we, we love to cast the blame for sin somewhere else. And it's, it's this, it's how I react to my sin. It reveals my true grasp of the gospel. If, if I can just take responsibility for my sin, knowing he has come to the cross and he has borne my burden, he has borne the weight of my sin, and through my trust and faith in him, I have been forgiven so I can claim my sin. That understands, I get the gospel really well, but when we try to make excuses for our sin, it shows, no, you don't understand the gospel very well. Your sin's been taken care of. You can freely admit your sin. It's it's because of what Jesus did that's described in Isaiah chapter 53. He, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds were healed. See, it's it's this presence of sin, though, that results in no longer just covenant love, but commanded love. We have to be commanded to love. Why do we have to be commanded? Because we don't live in a sinless Eden anymore. We live in a very sinful environment. That's why Jesus, when he was asked about the law, he, he sums up the law in two statements. The whole law, love God and love your neighbor. Wait, we have to be commanded to love God? Sure, we have to be commanded to love God. You know why we have to be commanded to love God? Because as we talked about last week, the philosophy of our world is you do you. The philosophy of God what Jesus Christ said to his followers, not you do you, deny yourself. Not you do you, take up your cross. Not you do you, follow me. So we have to say, I want to love myself because of sin, but instead I choose, I'm commanded, and so I will follow that command to love God. You see, one day when our eyes close in death and they, they, our eyes open to meet our Savior face to face, guess what we won't have to be commanded to do anymore? Love God. Sin is what keeps us from loving God because we want to love ourselves. And sin is what keeps us from loving our neighbors. That's why those Ten Commandments are all about your... Well, the, the, the last six are all about your neighbor. Don't steal from your neighbor. Don't lie to your neighbor. Don't take your neighbor's wife. Don't murder your neighbor. Don't even covet from your neighbor. Why would I do any of those things? Because I love me more than I love my neighbor. And I will freely step on and step over my neighbor anytime I want. Again, in Eden, God never says, Adam, love your wife. 
But when we get to the New Testament and Paul starts speaking in Ephesians, and if you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to join me in Ephesians. Oh, Paul says all the time, husbands, love your wives. In fact, in Ephesians 5, we'll begin in verse number 25. It is a repeated command. Love, love, love. Look at verse number 25 of Ephesians chapter 5. The Bible says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present her to himself I'm sorry, I've lost my place. Present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she should be holy and without blemish. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Verse 31. Here's Genesis 2.24 again. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying it refers to Christ and the church however let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband four times in these few short verses Paul says love your wife why does Paul say it so many times in such a short time it's easy because we know there was a game on tv and he was talking to a man and he needed to get his attention back again from watching. Love your wife. Love, 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 look at me. Love your wife. Love your, love your, love your wife. But why does he say it four times? Because sin continues to creep in and bring division into our lives. And it not only separates us, but it deceives us into thinking our wife should love me. No. Husbands, you love your wife as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He didn't ask if he was sinned against. No, Jesus loved the church by taking blemish and dirty people who had sinned against him. And he transformed them into beautiful, clean, holy, spotless bride. And he did it through his covenant love. Because his love was not conditional. It was covenantal. It was not how much will you love me. It was I will love you with everything that I have. And that is how we're supposed to love one another in our marriage. And I know there's probably some people in here like, I don't know how to love like that. If you have a child, you sure do. You think about what those babies offer mothers and fathers for the first 18 months of their life. Dirty diapers. Lots of them. And then for the next 18 years of their life, what do they offer? Nowhere near the love that's being given to them. No, instead, they're, they're, they lie to us. They steal from us. They, they'll look right at us and say, I hate you. And what do they get in return? I love you with every fiber of my being I love you and it's no wonder that so many marriages fail after the children leave the home because both spouses watch the other spouse offer covenantal love but not to them 
It was offered to those kids day after day after day. But the only thing offered to the spouse is conditional love. I'll be nice to you today because you were nice to me. But you were mean to me today. I'm not going to offer love to you today. And when those kids are gone and both know there's covenantal love inside of their hearts but not offering it to one another, that conditional love is simply a recipe for disaster. And that's why Jesus says through Paul, husbands, love your wives as I have loved you. I didn't wait for you to love me. In fact, I knew you sinned against me, but I took it all upon myself only to return covenant love as you were. So love your wife as you were loved. Treasure your wife as you were treasured. But I'll admit that there are times when, when we attempt to offer display love and it's not received well. Sometimes it's not received at all. And when love is not received, then, then the next step is I'm just going to withhold it because I'd rather not offer it than to offer it and be rejected. And so since I'm commanded to love, how do I offer love that will be received? It would do us no good to say I love you to someone who only spoke Japanese because they wouldn't understand what we're saying. And, and, and I, I want to just encourage you, like there's, there's a popular book and it, it's, it's, it's well known. It was written by Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages and I'm not trying to promote this as the solution to all your problems. But what this book helped, helps people understand is how do you speak love into someone else whether it's your spouse or your child or someone else and and and, and the way he's he's described is there's five different love languages there's words of affirmation there's acts of service there's receiving gifts quality time and, and physical touch and basically what you'll find is that each person has a top one or two in in their uh in their lives it's how they receive love for example for, for myself Words of affirmation by far outrank everything else. And then physical touch and acts of service are next. Uh, for me, if someone wants to be an encouragement, to hear words of, of, uh, of encouragement or, or thanks or, or, or recognition, those, that's very meaningful to me. And the next tier is physical touch. I mean, ask my family. I mean, we're always wrestling on the ground. I can't walk past my daughter without grabbing her hair. Can't walk past my wife without slap. I, I, we won't go there. Uh, <laughs> Acts of service are also important to me. When someone sees a need and steps in without being asked, that to me speaks my love language. But here's the problem. That's my love language. And for my wife, my top two are like at the bottom. Right, so to me, physical touches, I love it. So when I go up and I try to put my arms around her while she's doing something at the kitchen and she shakes me off, it's not because she doesn't love me. It's because, hey, that's not how she feels loved but you know what if i'm not careful that's a rejection of my love which then is going to make me say i'm not going to offer it because she didn't receive my love but i have to learn her love language which is gifts which gets expensive <laughs> i'm just kidding i could i could i could write her a beautiful note Tell her how much, how much she means to me and how lovely she is and all these things. That won't mean as much as showing up with a Diet Coke. <laughs> to me, I don't need a Diet Coke. Tell me how, tell me how much I mean to you. Oh, that's, that's words of affirmation, right? 
For me, I have to be careful too with acts of service. Like here, I'll see a load of laundry not being done. And I'm on the ground, I'm going to do the laundry while she's gone. I do all the laundry. It's all folded. She walks in. It's on the kitchen table. And she looks at it and she goes, oh no. Oh no, I just took me hours to do all this laundry and Stevie Owens never does his. But here, here, here's the question. Uh, did you put bleach in with the whites? No. Did you separate the colors? No. Did you throw my workout clothes in the dryer? Yeah. Brian, don't do the laundry. I'm like, that was an expression of, that's an act of service. That's an expression of love. And there was that rejection. And so it's so important for us to, to understand how to speak love into one another's lives. And it's also important for us to understand how to recognize the love language that's sometimes being expressed to us in a way that maybe we don't receive. I told you gifts is not like the top of my, everyone likes to get a gift, but it doesn't excite my day. But I know this, on, on Christmas, we're going to open up stockings that my wife has for months been picking out special little things and wrapped up and put in a stock because to her, that is that's how you love. And so I, I don't want to just run through them and, and be done. I want to stop and I want to think of each one. This is an expression of love from my wife. We have to be careful of, of assumptions too. Um, I, I would love to spend time here. I'm not, I'm not going to. Just, just real briefly. We have to be careful of assumptions because there, there are times when I assume that, that someone is withholding love from me. For, for example, I, I go home on a Sunday and, and, uh, and, and my typical Sunday morning when I get home after church is I walk in and Jamie's making the meal and the kids have either, they're either watching TV or reading a book or doing something and, and I'll walk in and no one says anything to me. I go all the way in, I go upstairs and it's like no one said a word to me about that sermon. All, all they had to do was say, hey, Dad, that was a really good sermon. Hey, thanks, thanks a lot. Like, they know I want to hear that, and they didn't say it. And you know what? Since they didn't offer me love, I'm going to go downstairs, and I'm not going to offer love to them. Huh. That's just an assumption. But that assumption sometimes divides marriages. Oh, we've got to learn how to speak love because we're commanded to love one another and how to receive it. But the last thing, I, I, I'll tell you one illustration and then I want to close with God's love. This is, I'm telling you this only because it was so helpful for me to hear. In, in the book, Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller told this, this illustration. And for those of you who are married and those of you who are going to be married one day, I hope this really helps. He said that in his home, his mom, Keller's mom, told, his, told, told him that I, when your dad gets home from work, I want him to just sit and relax. I don't want him to do anything. He goes to work all day for me so I could stay home and take care of the home. And when he gets home, I want him to just sit and relax. And Keller saw in his home how mom took care of dad when he got home. But in Keller's wife, her name was Kathy. In Kathy's home, it was the exact opposite. When her dad came home, he offered to do laundry and, and he offered to do, do the dishes and he offered to help make the meal. And he told his wife, he told 
his daughter is because I want, my, I want mom to know how much I love her. So she sat in a household and grew up watching the dad offering expressions of love to the mom through acts of service, while Keller saw a mom offering acts of service to the dad. And when the two of them got married, he would come home and sit and do nothing while she was in the kitchen thinking, he's not doing nothing. I cannot believe it. And when, he, when she asks him to help, he's thinking, well, my mom never asked my dad to help. You must not love me. And she said, I have to ask him to help because he never offers to help me because he doesn't love me. And it wasn't until they brought this together and began to understand, hey, we can't base our home on the homes in which we were raised. We have to figure out how we're going to offer love to one another. So helpful for me. I've never forgotten that. Most importantly, though, is God's love. What's God's love language? Oh, you, you know what God's love language is? Jesus. 1 John 4. Notice how many times love is mentioned. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever has born, been born of God and knows God, remember that, knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, remember that, because God is love. It is in this the love of God was made manifest among us. This is how God displayed his love, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the completeness of for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. He repeats it in Romans chapter number five where it says that God showed his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The love language of God is Jesus. That's how much he loves us. So then how do I love God? He loves us through Jesus clearly. How do I love God? I get to know his heart. We saw that in 1 John chapter 4. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God. This is why in Luke chapter 10, when Martha was in the kitchen trying to get everything ready for Jesus, she was serving and serving and serving him and was so tired. And she looked at her sister who was just married, just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And she said, Jesus, tell her to help me serve. And Jesus said, oh, Martha, oh, you're distracted by so many things. Mary has chosen the one good or best thing. She's sitting at my feet. And she's listening to my words, so she's getting to know my heart. And it's so important to know the heart of God because that gives us a chance then to obey. Jesus says in John chapter number 14, if you love me, keep my commandments. You've gotten to sit at my feet. You've heard me teach You've heard me speak. You've heard me pour out my heart now. Go live that. How do I do that? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's really all it is. 
But sin doesn't want you to love others. Sin wants you to love yourself and say, I have not been loved, so I am not going to offer love. No, no, no. We've got to stop thinking we've been sinned against, admit our own failures, see the love that God has offered to us, and then go offer it to others because sin will always keep you. Pride will always keep you from seeing sin and therefore your need for a Savior. We're not willing to admit this. I'm a sinner. We'll never know. But Jesus Christ offers forgiveness of sins and he offers a new heart. A heart that will love God and will love our neighbor because Jesus seeks to restore Eden. That's what he wants. He wants in our marriages, in our homes, in our relationships, in our lives, intimacy between man and fellowship with God. And he wants it in our homes and in our worlds so that we are no longer commanded to love, love, love. No, now we freely offer the covenant love that we've freely received from God. Covenant love is what we've received. Covenant love is what God desires us to offer. And so in closing, I'm gonna have Trinity come up today and she's gonna close with a song. And my desire is for you just to, just to sit at your seats and if you wanna watch the screen and look at the words, that's great. But more importantly, I want you to know and I want you to, I want you to think about and I want you to bask not, not, yet, not yet in the love to offer but I want you to bask in the love that you have received the overwhelming the never ending the reckless love of God receive it bask in it and then ask God how can I offer that yes to my spouse yes to my children my family, to my friends, to my co-workers, and then ask God to give you an opportunity today to offer covenant love that we're all commanded to share.